Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. Almost 6 million Americans suffer from bipolar disorder, but now research is being done locally that could provide some clues into the illness and maybe even change how bipolar disorder is treated. Our guest today is Dr. Erica Saunders, Associate Professor and Chair of Psychiatry at Penn State's College of Medicine. Dr. Saunders, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Scott. I'm very pleased to be here. And if you have a question or a comment, this is one of those uh, disorders, uh, one of those uh, mental illnesses that is often portrayed in the media and not often accurately. So if you have a question, if you have a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Since I just mentioned that, did you do you find that to be the case that often when uh, someone, a character in a movie, uh, a TV show is portrayed with uh, bipolar disorder that it's inaccurate or they're not portraying it in a good way? Um, that's true sometimes. There have been both good and bad portrayals in the media. And I think the awareness um, through some very strong advocacy work that's gone on in the past couple of decades has, re has really helped. Um, and so there are many people now who are speaking about out about their own experiences with bipolar disorder and other psychiatric disorders and, uh, and raising awareness. And I think that's a fantastic um, uh, thing that needs to happen so that uh, that we all understand a bit better about these illnesses, which are illnesses of the brain and can um, have so many different types of, of treatment and, and can, um, can really be treated well. You know, something you just mentioned, and you hear this very often, I have heard it on this program very often when we've talked about uh, behavioral issues, uh, mental illness, is that that stigma that is out there. And so just what you described, that we are talking about bipolar disorder, that people are willing to talk about their own diagnosis, for example, that that helps to maybe reduce the stigma some, somewhat. But we still have that, don't we? We do, absolutely. And, and illnesses like bipolar disorder that affect the brain um, often affect people's behavior, affect their interactions with other people, um, and, and cause them to do things that they wouldn't otherwise do. Um, and that can lead to very, very bad consequences for them and their families and, uh, and causes stigma. And there's been stigma around mental illness for um, forever. Is it getting better? I think that in some situations it's getting better. It's not where it needs to be, um, but there are there are movements, um, there are advocacy groups um, that are doing wonderful work in this area. All right, well, let's start with some of the basic questions before we get into your research. What is bipolar disorder? Very good question. So what I'd like to start by talking about is what is what is normal mood. So bipolar disorder, we call it a mood disorder. And, and moods are um, a part of our everyday life, um, and uh, it's something that we, we need. So we have, uh, have good moods and bad moods in, in relation to things that happen um, every day. Uh, and, and normally we don't, when we're feeling well, we don't think about our moods um, because it's just a natural part of how we react. What happens in bipolar disorder uh, is that uh, th that due to changes in the brain, the mood gets stuck either in an, an elevated state, which we call a mania, or in a uh, down state, which we call a depression. Um, and so the normal things that we usually do to change our mood, um, talk to somebody that we love, listen to music, um, go do something that we enjoy, um, do good work that uh, that we feel good about. Um, all of those things that we normally do to change our mood 
don't don't change the mood because it's become abnormal and um and that is what when, that's when a mood disorder really becomes problematic. And so it's not just mood. Um, there are a lot of other biological systems in addition to the system in the brain that produces, produces emotion and produces mood that uh, are affected by bipolar disorder. Um, and so uh, when we look at what happens when somebody has a mania or a depression is that there are all sorts of other pieces of their life that are affected and pieces of their so so not only just mood how they feel happy sad uh but sleep is affected appetite is affected energy is affected concentration um memory and um generally how uh how a person looks at the world um uh and and how they they process and think about what's going on on a day-to-day basis so it's it's a um condition um, that really affects everything about how a person is, is feeling at that time. Can a person who is diagnosed as bipolar, uh, can they live a normal life? Absolutely. Absolutely. So bipolar disorder is a disorder, and, and this is the same for major depressive disorder, which, is, uh, which has depression but not the manic up piece of bipolar disorder, um, is a, uh, a disorder... Um, a uh, relapsing disorder, so it c- tends to come in episodes. Uh, but m- most people with bipolar disorder have times when they feel well, um, and that's the goal of treatment: is to um, uh, is to lengthen and continue times that people feel well, prevent relapse of illness, um, and uh, absolutely, people with bipolar disorder. The goal of the goal of treatment is to. Uh, have times without symptoms. And this may be a dumb question, but uh, it used to be that uh, a person uh, that we would diagnose as uh, having bipolar disorder today used to be called manic depressive. Is there a reason that was changed? Did we learn something more that we actually decided to refer to it as bipolar disorder? There's a slight distinction in the terms. The, the term manic depressive illness includes um, not only what we call today bipolar disorder, which has the manias and the depressions. Manic depressive illness also includes recurrent depression um, that does not have the manic times. It's just a more inclusive term um, uh, due to changes in our diagnostic system. We now call, uh, uh, we now call it bipolar disorder, um, but that's more semantics than anything else. We're still talking about the same illness. And you were talking about the episodes. Mm-hmm. Is there something, is there a trigger needed to, to do that, or does a change just occur in the brain that uh, someone would go into a, a manic state? That's a very, very good question. So um, I'll, I'll take that question and answer it in a little bit more, a little bit broader context. So we think that, uh, we know that bipolar disorder runs in families. Um, it's a disorder that we know has a genetic basis. There are many different genes um, involved, and we, we know something about some of those genes, but not the whole picture yet. There's a lot of good work being done in that area. So, uh, so somebody with bipolar disorder may have a biological uh, predisposition to the illness, um, and often um, sometime in adolescence or early adulthood, sort of the 15 to 25-year-old range, um, is the time when the symptoms first come out. And um, sometimes that's triggered by an event, um, either something that happens or a medical illness, um, uh, uh, use of drugs and alcohol. Um, a number of things can sort of trigger um, trigger the episode. Um, and uh, then 
um, tends to recur over a lifetime, uh, and some episodes may be triggered by an by a, a, a trigger, um, either an event or a, 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 what, what I mentioned before, the medical illness, um, uh, drugs and alcohol, or maybe may come out of the blue. Um, and we know quite a bit about different things that can trigger uh, manias and depressions and bipolar disorder, uh, but uh, we don't necessarily understand yet why episodes come out of the blue. And that's uh, one of the reasons that we're really interested in learning more about the neurobiology of bipolar disorder and uh, what can cause that and what can we do then to, um, uh, uh, to perhaps detect illness detect an episode before it comes on. That That is one of the, the goals of research. We have an email here from uh, someone who calls himself a concerned parent. I think it's important to note that people with bipolar disorder often become symptomatic as young adults, and you met, just mentioned that. Our experience was that our school district, one of the best, seemed very poorly prepared to, uh, to handle this, uh, understand what our family was going through and how to handle our son while he was being diagnosed and we were developing the best treatment plan for him, which took several years of trying different medications. What can we do to change this situation? Unfortunately, that, uh, that describes a situation that's all too common. Um, and uh, we uh, struggle with, um, uh, with making accurate diagnoses early enough um, often bipolar disorder gets misdiagnosed as depression or other illnesses, and then treatment gets started and it's not quite, uh, you know, it doesn't work because it's not the treatment for the right illness. Um, uh, we need to, as a, uh, as a profession and as, as, as physicians, come together with uh, all of the um, individuals in patients' and families' lives that are, um, uh, that are trying to support that individual. Uh, and, and work together as a team to, to move toward um, the best treatment. This isn't necessarily the easiest thing to diagnose, is it? It's not, no, um, for, a variety of, for a variety of reasons. Um, one reason is that, as I mentioned before, uh, the first episode can happen in um, adolescence and early adulthood, and um, it can start with depression, um, and it can start with several depressions, uh, several episodes of depression, and it can be a while before the person experiences mania. And the treatment for depression without mania, what we call unipolar depression, and the treatment for bipolar disorder depression, the depression that ex you experience in bipolar disorder, is different uh, and don't respond to the same treatments, especially don't respond to the same medications. I'm using treatment here in a broad sense. Um, because we have a number of different types of, of treatment. We have medications that we, that we use for bipolar disorder, but there are also psychotherapeutic treatments, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, interpersonal therapy, different types of therapy um, that can also be used, uh, particularly to treat uh, the depression associated with bipolar disorder as well. Let's take a phone call from Kate in Edders, who has a story to tell. Kate, you're on the air. Okay, thank you. Yes, my grandfather um, was Joshua Logan. And he was um, a Hollywood and Broadway director. He did South Pacific and Camelot. And um, he suffered with what at that time was called manic depression. And, you know, we sort of we grew up with this secret of um, my grandfather's illness. And it was always a matter of covering it up until he was treated by a doctor named Ronald Feezy who was one of the pioneers of lithium, 
<coughs> and when he found the success of the lithium treatment, he decided that as a celebrity, it was important for him to speak out about his um, illness, about the struggles of his illness, and also about the effectiveness of the treatment. And so <clears throat> he went on talk shows, and he spoke a great deal about it, and really it was sort of like coming out of the closet with his mental illness. Mm -hmm. um, well, he should be congratulated for that, and uh, he probably influenced a lot of people's lives over the years. He did. Yes, he did. Um, he, one of his, one of the issues around it was one that I think a lot of people with bipolar may struggle with is that feeling good, he would stop taking the medication, uh. um, and wondered if it also affected his creativity. Mm. But he also felt it was very important as a person who had a voice in the theater and had a voice as a celebrity to um, to speak out and to indeed affect other people. Okay, um, Kate, Kate, I'm glad you called in. Thank you very much for your call. She touched on several issues there. Lithium, that is one of the main treatments, isn't it? Lithium is, is a main treatment of bipolar disorder. It was revolutionary when uh, it was discovered that lithium treated uh, both the manias and depression and prevent uh, episodes of bipolar disorder. And, and for many people, um, for a certain proportion of people with bipolar disorder, lithium is it. When they, when they start lithium and get onto lithium, um, they, feel, they feel well. Um, and uh, and that's, that's wonderful. Unfortunately, it's not true for everybody with bipolar disorder, um, but it is a medication that, um, uh, that often works very well. And, um, and we're trying to understand more about why, why that is. Um, but the, something else that Kate mentioned there, and that's one of the most important aspects of this discussion. We've often heard those stories, uh, you know, about the, you know, when there's something, a crime has committed, been committed or uh, someone has done something out of the ordinary to themselves or someone else. We often hear that they stop taking their medication. And I don't know if I can say it often happens, but just what Kate described, when you're feeling pretty good, you're thinking, oh, I don't need that. Sure, sure. And that's, um, I, it's really, it's part of the illness. So so part of bipolar disorder, either the manic t times when people feel up, high, excited, and do things that impulsively that they would otherwise not do, or part of depression when they feel down, low, um, and and depressed um, in both in both phases, but particularly in the manic phase, um, part of the illness is lack of recognition that one is ill, um, and uh, and it's a change in the in, in the cognitive thinking part of the brain um, that causes that to happen. Uh, and so we do a lot of work when we treat um, treat people and, and work with families. We do a lot of work in. Um, in talking about how to stay on medication during times when you feel well. Um, and that needs to be a really dynamic discussion with the providers and with the family and the support system um, to understand that. Because just as you wouldn't go off your, your antihypertensive medication when your blood pressure is normal, it's the same thing with bipolar disorder. Um, you don't want to go off a medication treatment that is keeping you well. 
You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. We're talking about bipolar disorder and some research that Dr. Saunders has done. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Eric S. Saunders, Associate Professor and Chair of Psychiatry at the Penn State College of Medicine. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532 or send an email to smarttalk at WITF.org. All right, before we get into your research, you mentioned very early on that uh, one of the causes of bipolar disorders changes in the brain. What kind of changes? There are a number of different changes in the in the brain that cause um, bipolar disorder, and it's a change. I'm going to group them into categories. So there are changes in what we call the neurotransmitters, which are the chemicals that uh, help the, the neurons, the cells, to talk to each other. There are changes in the connections between different parts of the brain, um, and you know one of the main changes in bipolar disorder and, and other disorders, but particularly bipolar disorder, is that the, uh, the emotional part of the brain, the limbic system, and the prefrontal cortex, cortex which is the cognitive area of the brain, uh, the connections don't work as well as usual. So that gets back to um, where we first started with that idea that you can't, um, you can't talk yourself out of it. Uh, so because the connections literally between the parts of the brain that help you to uh, use, use thoughts and connect thoughts and feelings are, um, uh, are, are impaired. All right, so let's get into your research now. I'm uh, going to focus on really what your research is centered on is omega-3 fatty acids. Before we talk about that in bipolar disorder, what are omega-3 fatty acids? Yes, yes, good. Um, so omega-3 fatty acids are a type of polyunsaturated fatty acid. Um, and I'm going to say first off that I am a psychiatrist and I do this work with in conjunction with, uh, with neuroscientists and um, uh, and others that are, are more closely involved to the biochemical piece of it. It's important to, to work as a team in that way. But omega-3 fatty acids are, are a type of polyunsaturated fatty acid, which is a specific type of fatty acid. And the reason we're interested in it for bipolar disorder um, and, uh, uh, and other disorders uh, like depression and schizophrenia is that um, polyunsaturated fatty acids play uh, two very important roles in the brain. One is that they influence the flexibility of membranes of cells in the brain, um, and they play an important role in um, transmitting signals, cell cellular signals throughout the brain. Um, there was a long line of research of, of, of why uh, uh, there was interest in fatty acids in the brain. Um, and I'll just touch on a piece of it that got me interested, uh, which is that our collaborator at uh, National Institutes of Aging, Stanley Rappaport, done work for years and found that he was interested in, a, in actually the, the sister polyunsaturated fatty acid, the omega-6 fatty acids, um, and found that those fatty acids um, uh, were particularly changed by medications that were effective for bipolar disorder. So as you know, me medications for bipolar disorder come from several different medication classes. Um, and these medications change the fatty acids in the brain. And so we're interested in learning more about that, bi that neurobiology and how those changes occur and then what that can mean for treatment. All right. Too much, too little as far as what impacts uh, uh, bipolar disorder? I wish it were that clear. Uh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, it's not a, a matter of too much or too little. It may be a matter of um, balance 
between fatty acids and between fatty acid systems. Fatty acids, I should mention, are also involved with inflammation. And there's a lot of research going on right now about how inflammation in the brain uh, may play a role in depression and bipolar disorder um, as well. Uh, so there have been several um, uh, studies looking at whether giving fatty acid supplements in bipolar disorder can be helpful. Um, and the, uh, the verdict is, is not quite out on that yet. It's, it's possible, but it's not as helpful as we would like. Now, when you say it's not quite that simple as too much, too little, what are some of the foods that, uh, you know, where we could find omega-3 fatty acids? So omega-3 fatty acids are in fatty fishes, uh, flaxseed, um, walnuts, um, mainly fish like tuna, salmon, uh, those sorts of fishes, um, and then those other plant-derived sources. So those, those things that you mentioned are all associated with healthy diet. Yes. Uh, so, uh, again, without knowing whether too much, too little, are you saying that maybe we should eat those things for a healthy brain? Well, there have, there have been studies um, uh, that show that those foods are part, are part of a, a healthy diet and a general healthy diet, and we certainly um, encourage uh, overall um, healthy diet, um, and that can mean a lot of different things, uh, uh, which uh, we could go into, but um, uh, uh, for, our, for our patients and for, for people who are suffering from this disorder. Um, but in terms of specific um, specific changes. One of the things that we're interested in, we're actually doing a study on this now, is whether if you change the um, the intake of omega-3 and omega-6 fatty acids in particular ways, whether that helps mood stability in bipolar disorder when it's used in conjunction with other treatments, with particularly with medication treatment. Because there is that genetic component, uh, can this be avoided? I mean, is this something that... Uh, uh, if you know uh, your mother, father, or grandparent uh, had been diagnosed as bipolar, uh, with di bipolar disorder, that you do everything you can to try to avoid it, can that be done? Um, I wish I could say that it, that we had the magic answer to, to prevent um, bipolar disorder. We don't. But what we do know is that there are a number of, of um, ways to protect uh, yourself or protect your loved ones. Um, and by that, I'm talking about a uh, healthy diet, healthy lifestyle, um, good sleep habits, um, staying away from uh, drugs and alcohol, um, careful attention to um, treatment of other medical illnesses, particularly um, uh, illnesses of the, of the thyroid and of the endocrine system that might trigger a mania or a depression, um, and uh, good habits in terms of, of stress management. All of those things are a good part of, of, of keeping someone well, um, keeping yourself well, and of uh, perhaps preventing um, episodes from happening when they otherwise would. One final question. What do you want the research to do? I mean, I'm assuming here from what we're talking about that this is something new. Your findings are, are relatively new. What are you hoping that we get from it? So our findings are, uh, are are new. We just published a study. It fits into um, a, uh, a a group of studies that's been done in the past ten years, and we're uh, we're hoping to learn more about how um, the different systems in the body, particularly in the fatty acid and inflammation system, affect the neurobiology of mood. Um, 
and the symptoms that go along with mood like like sleep. How do how can we use that for either identifying episodes uh, before they happen, as we were talking about before, or improving treatment? And right now, the study that we're doing is a is a randomized controlled trial of of diet intervention to look at whether. Uh, whether this can improve treatment over time for people with bipolar disorder. Dr. Erica Saunders is an associate professor and chair of psychiatry at the Penn State College of Medicine. Dr. Saunders, thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you so much, Scott. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF. Your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is WITF's annual Roses campaign, and I'm joined by State Impact Pennsylvania reporter Marie Cusick. Marie, I only saw you a few minutes ago, and you're still smiling. You you like this campaign, don't you? I know. The sun has come out. It's a beautiful day. It's a little cold, but uh, we know you can warm someone's heart up with a, a beautiful bouquet of roses. And this is our... our Day two of our on-air portion of the Roses campaign, we do this every year. We partner with Royer's Flowers uh, to bring sunshine to people's days on Valentine's Day. And you still have time to order. You can go to WITF.org slash roses or call 1-800-233-9483. So with your contribution to WITF of $100, you can send some beautiful red or rainbow-colored half-dozen roses for $125 contribution. You can send a dozen red or rainbow roses. You can send them all over the country until noon tomorrow, Friday. But we can make local deliveries until noon on on Sunday, Valentine's Day. So head online to WITF.org slash roses. Marie, I like to think that the Smart Talk audience is a little more romantic than most. Yeah, and they're a little smarter, too. Yeah, well, I, have, I have nothing to base that on other than that's my <laughs> own. Because of all the love you get with the phone calls <laughs> and the can't. emails. Maybe that's what it is. But uh, we'd like to see the Smart Talk audience come through and, uh, you know, that someone special out there, that loved one, that spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, that significant other. Uh, maybe it's just someone that, you know, I think about uh, a couple weeks ago uh, when we had the big snowstorm and so many neighbors were out helping their neighbors, uh, you know, shoveling out driveways, using snow blowers, uh, sidewalks, that kind of thing. Maybe you'd like to send some roses that show that you appreciated the help that you got from your neighbors. Yeah, this is a great idea for a romantic partner, obviously, but it's also just a great idea for somebody in your life who you care about. You can show them that you care about them. Those rainbow roses are great for that. That's sort of less romantic than the red roses. Um, but you're also showing your love for public radio and for WITF and the service we provide, you know, this doesn't just happen magically. It, You know, you tune on your radio. It comes in every day for free over the air. Um, but it doesn't just happen. All the folks down in Washington, D.C. at NPR working hard around the country. They have overseas bureaus. We have a team here in central Pennsylvania. And Scott is trying to make me laugh right now with the, the teddy bear. We have a teddy bear um, in the studio. But this doesn't just it doesn't just happen. We we need your support to make it happen. Um, and for just $10, you can add that teddy bear onto the order. That's, so. <laughs> actually, I wasn't trying to make you laugh. I was just reminding you about the 10 extra dollars for the plush teddy bear, which would be a... a and every dollar helps. That's and every right. dollar counts. That's right. So. And uh, I understand that these uh, plush teddy bears are flying off the shelves. So uh, they, they are. are very popular this morning. But uh, Marie, thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we'll talk to you again in just a few minutes. We'll give our, our listeners an 
opportunity to uh, think about this a little bit more. WITF.org slash roses. Okay. <laughs> You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. Now let's get a little less romantic. Uh, the New Hampshire primary is history, and it's on the South Carolina for the presidential candidates. The southern states who will vote like South Carolina and others on Super Tuesday in a few weeks are different than Iowa and New Hampshire on issues that matter most. And they're very different demographically. Our guest to talk about uh, the kind of a reset of the presidential campaigns, Dr. David O'Connell, professor of political science at Dickinson College. And uh, he has been a guest on the program talking about his book that was released last year, God Wills It, Presidents and the Use of Religion. Dr. O'Connell, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you'd like to weigh in on this topic, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at WITF.com. All right. We heard so much about Iowa and New Hampshire in the months leading up to uh, the caucuses and also the, the primary. But now we're looking at something completely different going on to South Carolina. What do you see going on in South Carolina with this presidential campaign? Sure. Well, you know, you mentioned resetting the race. Uh, and I think as far as the Democrats go, I don't know that there's been a reset. I might disagree with you a little on that. So Maybe I was referring more mostly to the Republicans. The Republicans, side, yeah, yeah, because on the Democrat side, I think historically what we've seen is that you have to win Iowa or New Hampshire. You don't have to win both. Uh, that the only time in the modern era that we've seen a candidate go on to win the nomination on either side without winning one of those first two contests, uh, it was an extremely unusual year. It's something like 1972 uh, when Edmund Muskie wins in the first two contests, but he cries outside the union leader mm -hmm. offices over attacks on his wife. Uh, and that makes people think, well, you know, maybe this guy's not quite tough enough to go up against Richard Nixon. Or in 1992, Clinton doesn't win either. He goes on to win the nomination. But Iowa doesn't really count that year because of the fact that uh, Tom Harkin's running for president. And so it's not really contested. Who was from Iowa. Right. For, yeah. Exactly. Uh, and so... Hillary Clinton did what she needed to do in these first contests. Uh, you know, she wins in Iowa, technically wins in Iowa. Uh, and the loss in New Hampshire, it was bad. Uh, it was perhaps more... Uh, extensive than people might have anticipated. Uh, and indeed, I think that says something about her liabilities as a candidate. You know, when you see polls showing that over 60% of Americans don't trust her, uh, and then individuals who valued trust and integrity as their most important characteristic for a candidate uh, in New Hampshire go 91% for Sanders, it indicates she's got some issues. I'd but, say some real issues. Some issues, yeah. yeah. But ultimately, I think she's really well positioned going forward. You can bounce back from a bad loss in New Hampshire. Uh, George Bush in 2000 had a lot of the same advantages that Hillary Clinton had, uh, loses by 18 points to McCain, and then goes on to win in South Carolina. And I think that's what we're likely to see. Uh, Clinton's got a substantial lead in South Carolina. The biggest advantage that she has going for her is that the state is um, over 50% of the electorate is likely to be African-American. And she has nationally 40-point leads over Sanders uh, in that key demographic. Uh, so she lost a state to a neighboring senator uh, who uh, in a state that's 94% white. I don't think it's anything for her to be that concerned about. Uh, and certainly as a political scientist, and I think the public is more aware of this now, uh, we know that the number one predictor of who's going to win a nomination, uh, their endorsements, right, their support from party elites. It's almost a one-to-one -one relationship between the percent of endorsements a candidate receives and the share of votes that they're going to get in the primaries. And that holds at the state level, too. Uh, I checked this yesterday. Hillary Clinton currently has uh, endorsements from 300, pledges from 360 
two super delegates. Sanders has eight. Uh, so I think her advantages are going to win out over time. But on the Republican side, I think what's really interesting is that the hope was a candidate would emerge opposite Trump uh, and that you could maybe have a three-person race going forward, Trump, Cruz, and Rubio, and that didn't happen. Uh, Rubio underperformed. He had that terrible debate performance on Saturday night before New Hampshire, and you've still got this muddled race, which I think then, in a way, doesn't reset the race because it works to Trump's advantage. In all these polls, when he's leading nationally, what seems to be missed is that just as many people say they would never vote for him under any circumstances, those who would. And so having that uh, confusion on the other side, it prevents people from uniting in opposition to him. And so in some ways, I'd say the the race is still the, the same place, uh, that Trump is, is being advantaged by this confusion on the Republican side. And Hillary has these advantages that just make her the overwhelming favorite. One of your areas of extra expertise is religion and, and candidates. Let's talk a, f a little bit about that, because we heard that one of the reasons that Ted Cruz was so strong and won in Iowa was the evangelical vote. Uh, New Hampshire, more independent, more moderate, not as many evangelicals. Uh, people identify themselves as, as very religious. Going to South Carolina, we go back to evangelicals. Does that mean that Ted Cruz would be... I mean, um, I think the answer, obvious answer is he'll be stronger, mm. but it will it be enough for him to win South Carolina? I think it's not going to be enough. Uh, oh, you don't? Okay. I don't, no. Uh, certainly the um, total number of evangelicals in Iowa and South Carolina, very similar. Uh, we're talking about two-thirds of the Republican electorate in each state. But what history has shown is that evangelicals in South Carolina, they don't vote as monolithically as those in Iowa. Uh, so if we looked at 2008, Mike Huckabee is a candidate whose profile in some ways resembles Ted Cruz. Uh, in some ways, he's even stronger in South Carolina, given that he's a, a southern governor, uh, and he has the the support of evangelicals coming out of Iowa, but he doesn't win in South Carolina. John McCain wins, uh, and he only gets 43% of the evangelical vote in that state. So I don't think that just because two-thirds of the state uh, is composed of evangelicals, that means that Cruz is going to... Um, win that state. Uh, and indeed, Trump has started to cut into his margins among evangelicals, too. And that started running up to, to Iowa when he received endorsements from people like Jerry Falwell. Jerry Fowell Jr., uh, and so forth. Uh, and despite all the liabilities that Trump has with he or should have with evangelicals, mispronouncing names of the Bible, uh, calling Holy Communion a little cracker, uh, he's he's doing he's doing okay. He's doing okay among evangelicals. And so I think that Cruz is going to perform better than he did in New Hampshire. But I wouldn't say that he's he's the favorite. I actually think there's an opportunity for a candidate like a Bush or Rubio to jump ahead of him because of the important role that veterans play in South Carolina. That's 25 percent of the electorate, and you're already seeing that become a large part of their pitches. George Bush, or rather, George Bush is out campaigning for Jeb Bush, telling people that Jeb will keep us safe, uh, and he remains popular in the state because of his connection to the military. Uh, and Jeb Bush yesterday is reminding voters about how Trump insulted John McCain and his experience as a prisoner of war. And so that 25 percent of the electorate that's active military or a veteran, I, I think that is one of those cross-cutting features that limits the influence of evangelical 
obstacles that makes it more difficult for Cruz. What about John Kasich? I mean, John Kasich uh, finished uh, a fairly strong uh, second in, uh, okay, fairly strong. It, it, that's subjective. Yeah, yeah 16% but, right, fairly well, strong this year. Well, compared to the other, compared yeah. to 12%, but still, right. uh, finished second in New Hampshire, which was a little bit of a surprise, more of a moderate state, independent. Does that translate at all? I, I don't know that it translates in South Carolina. Uh, it's certainly what he needed to do. If he finished with 5% of the vote, like Chris Christie, uh, his campaign Maybe would be gone. over. Yeah. Uh, and so he survived that winnowing out process. But I don't know that the demographics of South Carolina really look good for him. Uh, and I suspect that he'll make an effort because he needs to finish strong enough that he doesn't lose some of that momentum. But I wouldn't be surprised if he starts putting his focus on some of the states voting on March 1st uh, or or Michigan on, I think, March 8th uh, and beginning to look a little more towards moderate industrial states that have a more uh, moderate electorate uh, that would better uh, potentially uh, be a voting base for him. Let's take a phone call from Lynn in Lancaster. Lynn, you're on the air. Hey, good afternoon. Love the show. Always um, a big, big time listener. Thank you. Um, my um, my issue is um, with uh, Secretary Clinton and just the whole process on the Democratic side, because how is it that Hillary Clinton breaks even in Iowa, 50-50, she gets destroyed in New Hampshire, and she has more delegates than Bernie Sanders. That is where we're scratching our heads. We're thinking, wait a minute, how in the world can you get a fair shake in our party when, guess what, she loses one, breaks even in another, and she has more delegates? Can you answer that, please? Thank you very much for your call. Good question. Yeah, I do think that it suggests some of the problems of the process. But the Democrats put in these uh, provisions for superdelegates coming out of the chaos in the 1968 race, uh, where you had uh, uprisings in the street and you had people who wanted to put in place an anti-war candidate and were not given any say in the nomination. Uh, And there was... uh, provisions put in place to just ensure that party elders, elected officials, uh, key members within the state party organizations would have some say. And so those superdelegates, they're about 20% of the total that uh, you need to obtain the nomination. Uh, and so because of Hillary Clinton's advantage among those superdelegates, uh, she right now is already about 15% of the way towards achieving the nomination. But that doesn't mean that in the end all those people will stick with her. Uh, she had that support at the start of 2008, uh, and then Obama's strong, continual performance throughout February meant that he started to draw that type of elite support. And so I think that if Sanders is able to do well in the contest going forward, some of those things will shift in his favor. I'm just skeptical that he's going to be able to do that. We have an email here. Someone who disagrees with you somewhat uh, said that uh, your guest notes that trust is a huge issue when it comes to folks supporting Bernie over Hillary. Uh, And we call them by their first names now, apparently. (laughs) We know know how that goes. Then he suggests that the overwhelming number of political endorsements received by Hillary from current and past elected officials will seal her nomination. I disagree. I think that what we're hearing from the populace is that uh, this rejection of the establishment, whether it be the media, the political parties, powerful special interest or whoever, 
Whoever has been traditionally in control and its ability to determine our democracy's fate. That is one of the unique aspects of this campaign is that and on both sides, in both parties, that candidates that uh, very early on were looked at as, oh, that's, you know, they don't stand a chance. The establishment candidates will, will come out of this victorious. But voters, at least in the first two states, are saying that's not the case. Yeah. And obviously, I do think that there's there's clearly anger out in the electorate. Only about 25 percent of Americans feel the country is on the right track right now. And you do see similarities between Sanders and Trump's rhetoric. Right? They're both using those old style populist appeals where they're criticizing elites, uh, whether that's corporate elites in Sanders case or incompetent bureaucrats in Trump's case, uh, and that those elites are somehow taking the country on the wrong direction and away from the true desires of the people. Uh, And so that anger seems to be fueling or that frustration with the establishment, with the way things are going, it does seem to be fueling both of their uh, their campaigns right now to an extent. But ultimately, I mean, the research on this is is pretty clear uh, that there is that pretty close to a one-to-one relationship between endorsements and who goes on to receive the uh, nomination. And the polls up into this point, uh, they, they're mostly meaningless. I could do a scatter plot that would show uh, support in the national polls right before Iowa, say two months out before Iowa, uh, and then how people did in the in the end. Uh, and you would see you would see no no relationship. I mean, we think about someone like Rudy Giuliani uh, in 2008, who was getting about 30 percent in the polls, and then he quickly quickly flames out. So I think that based on the research that we have, it does say that that elite support is important and that there will be candidates who can win early contests and they can exploit different characteristics of certain states. But that doesn't mean over the long run they're positioned to succeed. We uh, have a couple of questions here about uh, Senator Sanders. Um, good question, uh, and especially one tied to religion. Uh, Bernie Sanders is Jewish. Um, I don't know if a lot of people know that, but uh, Jews are not loving Bernie Sanders. Has he failed to attract uh, the Jewish vote by not capitalizing on his religion or is his behavior on point because he isn't actively practicing? Uh, well, I actually don't know uh, much about the the polls specifically looking at Jewish support for Bernie Sanders. Uh, but what I can speak to is kind of the general role that his faith would play in the campaign. I think the fact that he's not that religious or not that outwardly religious uh, isn't so significant in a Democratic primary uh, contest. Uh, the Democrats over time have really become much more of a secular party. Uh, in 2012, they actually removed references to God from their party platform, and it took an intervention by Obama to, to change that. Uh, you see that polls now show that uh, more people think the Democrats are generally unfriendly to religion than friendly to religion. A rising number of Democrats who wouldn't vote for a qualified evangelical, even if they were nominated by their own party. Uh, and so I, I don't think that's much of a, a liability for him in a Democratic Democratic contest, whether he outwardly expresses his faith or not. We have another question here. The youth vote has often been disregarded since it is traditionally low and inconsistent. Now Bernie Sanders has seen massive youth voter turnout drawing comparison to Obama in 08. With so many young people getting involved in politics, can we expect to see massive change and participation in the future, or do you think this is all dependent on a Bernie Sanders win? Yeah, I mean, I think that... uh, 
what we know about turnout shows that the two most important predictors about whether someone goes to the poll or not, polls or not, are age and education. Uh, and younger Americans just simply do not vote. And then actually that has important policy consequences because you have this reciprocal relationship where seniors turn out at high rates. Uh, policy then tends to favor senior citizen interests. Uh, it's about eight dollars for every uh, dollar that's spent on senior citizen that we spend on children today. Uh, and then seniors turn out at higher rates to protect those advantages, and it continues along that, that road. Whereas for younger Americans, it works in the opposite way. They don't turn out. Policy doesn't necessarily favor them. That leads fewer Americans to the younger Americans to turn out and so forth. Uh, but I, I just don't necessarily see that changing over the long term because it's been a consistent finding. And indeed, even in 2008, uh, youth voter turnout was higher among young minorities, uh, but not really dramatically higher than it was in 2004 among young white voters. So in the aggregate, it wasn't that much of an increase. And in the primaries, you still saw seniors outnumber young voters in those primary electorates three to four to one. The reason that Obama won those primaries in 2008 wasn't because of his high support among young voters, which he certainly had. It was more because of his really high support among minority voters. Mm. Let's uh, go to the phone now. Uh, Philip is in Harrisburg. Philip, we have about uh, two minutes left. All right. I'll try to make this question quick. Okay. Um, so as a uh, recent poli-sci graduate, I have always been told that as for elections, you want to lean more towards the people who are, quote, lack of a better way to put it, on the fence. Uh, however, in the recent primaries, the support seems to slowly be leaning, for example, Trump in New Hampshire and Iowa, and uh, Bernie Sanders recently in New Hampshire. Uh, if, for whatever reason, Trump wins the Republican Party and Bernie Sanders wins the Democrat, that leaves the very far right and the very far left as the front runners. And where would that leave the moderate vote? Thank you very much for your call. Right. Well, I do think that uh, that idea of appealing to the median voter is something that we certainly do talk about in our political science classes. Uh, and I think it applies more towards the, the general election. We have seen that when we talk about polarization, I think it's important to be clear what we mean by that. Uh, certainly Congress has polarized. The party elites have polarized. The average American citizen hasn't polarized. You still see wide agreement on those hot-button social issues among people who live in red and blue states uh, and those individuals are just not necessarily represented by the people that are in government. Uh, and so I, I, I feel that it's it's less likely in a general election that you're going to see those kind of hard right, hard left pitches. Uh, Dr. O'Connell, thank you very much for being with us today. Quickly, what should we be looking for in South Carolina? Well, I think the what I'm looking for is a easy uh Hillary Clinton win right now. And then I'm interested to see if Trump's margin right now, which is about 15, 16 points, it, it narrows in the days to come because of veterans. Dr. David O'Connell is professor of political science at Dickinson College. He authored the book, God Wills It, Presidents and the Use of Religion. Dr. O'Connell, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks so much. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. It is an important time at WITF, the annual Roses campaign. Marie Cusick joins me now. It is an important time of year, Marie. It is. It's a busy time of year for us. Uh, we come on the air a few times a year asking for your support. Um, and this time we're really asking you to show your love for public radio uh, with a contribution to WITF of $125. You can send a dozen red or rainbow beautiful long-stemmed roses to somebody else that you care about in your life, whether that's a romantic partner, a friend, a family member, 
Uh, or with a $100 contribution, you can send half a dozen red or rainbow roses. Or you could go all out with $250 contribution to WITF, send two dozen roses. Or you can add a $10 stuffed teddy bear to any of those orders. What do I do with that teddy bear? Oh, there it is. It's like looking over my shoulder. (laughs) I kind of, out of my peripheral vision, I felt there was someone looking at me anyway, but it's a uh, plush teddy bear for 10 bucks. But uh, you're right. And and Valentine's Day coming on a Sunday this year is a little bit different, but Royer's Flowers, our partner for so many years, and we have a great partnership. uh, And of course, Royer's has such a great reputation for such a, a fantastic product. But uh, because Valentine's Day is on a Sunday, they've made a few exceptions this year, haven't they, as far as delivery goes? Right. Well, so we are sending flowers along with the Royers all over the United States. The last time I checked, I think we'd sent them to 35 states. So usually we hit all 50. Um, But you can send the roses nationally uh, until tomorrow, Friday at noon. Or if you want to send them locally here in central Pennsylvania, you do have until noon on Valentine's Day, February 14th. Uh, so that you do have some time left. Uh, but we know that a lot of people love to send them, um, surprise somebody at their office. You know, that's kind of a nice gift when you walk in the morning and there's a big bouquet of roses on your desk. So you have until, uh, you know, you could do that today or tomorrow if you'd like. And uh, we've already had, you know, a great show of support. This campaign's already topped over $90,000. Um, so thank you to everybody who's already called in with your contribution. 1-800-233-9483. Or it's really easy to do this online. We're directing a lot of folks to the website, witf.org slash roses. We've had people um, give orders from Camp Hill, Harrisburg, York, Palmyra, uh, Lidditz, Lancaster, all over the place. So uh, keep it coming. We appreciate your support. And, you know, Scott, I think people just, they tune in every day and they think you're just here and it just sort of magically happens, <laughs> right? There's, it, it takes time. It takes money. It takes effort. I would say this. I would uh, I would say that I would do this for free, but I'd be lying. Uh, <laughs> I do need a paycheck. You work hard for the money. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Maria, I, all right, I have a personal question to ask you. Uh-oh. <laughs> have you ever received uh, roses? at work yes actually you have I all have. right now now you have to go one step further how did it make you feel i felt wonderful um and i just want to say too i noticed we're not reading the donor names on air because obviously we know a lot of people want to surprise um the recipient but i noticed every year we get a lot of men obviously i, know, I see a I lot saw of that. men ordering for i assume women but i you know i would encourage the ladies uh you can also order roses for somebody. You can order it for a friend or a family member, or you can order order them for your man. Um, I sent my husband doesn't like me to tell this story, but I sent him flowers once. Um, he was he's a home brewer brewing beer and had a bad accident with one of the beers exploding on him. So I sent him flowers, and he really enjoyed it. Did you ever get flowers, <laughs> Scott? I, I haven't. No, and and no, why why doesn't your husband like you telling that story? Because it doesn't sound good. <laughs> It sounds Why like he not? doesn't know what he's doing, <laughs> but he does. He brews great beer, but he did one day, he had an accident with some glass, and uh, I sent him flowers, and he, he really appreciated it. Well, how did that batch of beer turn out? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but you see, the point is, is that uh, it, it does go both ways, that uh, uh, women can send 
flowers to men, can send roses to men, and uh, most people don't have an explosion when they're crafting their beer, but <laughs> you know, maybe there is some kind of other medical issue, someone not feeling great, maybe not in a, the best of moods lately, uh, so it is a great opportunity. There are a lot of reasons to reach out to say to someone that you're special to me, and this is a, a perfect time to do it by going to WITF.org or calling 1-800-233-9483. That website, again, is WITF.org slash roses, or give us a call. We have volunteers standing by, 1-800-233-9483. Again, with a contribution of $125 to WITF supporting the programming you love, you can send one dozen red or rainbow roses to somebody you love in central Pennsylvania or around the country. Give us a call, 1-800-233-9483. Ray, thank you very much. I'll talk to you a little bit later. All right, thanks, Scott. Coming up on tomorrow's program, big week at the state capitol, so we have Capital Week in Review. Also talk about innovations in heart health.